Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. And today, our Media Path is taking us through the work of extraordinarily gifted comedian Sean Pulaski. But first, Fritz, what have you been watching and reading this week? Well, it don't have to be new to get my attention. This is a great book by Alan Zweibel called Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. This guy is like the go-to punch-up artist for everybody funny. And even though this isn't a new book, I wanted to call people's attention to it because he showed up in the Belushi documentary that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And I thought folks might be interested in the musings of one of the funniest people in the current comedy world, Alan Zweibel. And in this book, he's got hysterical stories about writing for Saturday Night Live, about his relationship with Gilda Radner. He wrote a book about her. And there's a chapter in his book entitled, Even Death Helped Gilda Save My Ass, which I love. His relationship, what he calls an unfinished relationship with Gary Shandling and Gary's first hit that he was a part of, it's Gary Shandling's show on Showtime. His relationship with Billy Crystal, who writes the foreword to the book. Alan helped Billy write his hit Broadway show, 700 Sundays. This guy is one of the comedy brains behind some of the funniest people in our current business. And if you're interested in the business, I think you'll find him to be a fascinating character. He's extemporaneously hysterical, so uh, he's, he's, he's worth a read. Now, the uh, TV show that I want to call attention to is The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. This is a limited series. This is the story of a girl who starts her life in an orphanage in the 1950s, discovers she has an amazing talent for chess. She learns the game in the basement of the orphanage from a custodian who becomes her chess Yoda. The Queen's Gamut is a chess move. Incidentally, it's one of your opening moves in a game. And this takes this young woman through an astonishing rise through the ranks of competitive chess, moving up to facing off against the world's greatest chess players. You guessed it. Russians with no personality. <laughs> you don't have to care about the game of chess, though, I'm telling you. You don't have to play chess. Matter of fact, I've given it a stab. I can't learn it. For me, chess is like trying to do calculus for recreational purposes. It's too hard. But it's much more than that. It's about women's empowerment. It's about a woman dominating in a male-dominated world of chess. It's about being good at one thing that makes you feel like you have a reason to be on the planet. And as a parent, I looked at it as an interesting study on what it would be like to have a child with an extra special talent and how you react to it. So I want to say, uh, uh, following that thread, Fritz, that I'm obsessed with movies about chess, and I have no idea how to play chess. I think the reason I find it so intriguing is that chess serves as such a perfect metaphor for so much of life. So I'm going to recommend a movie for you called Searching for Bobby Fischer. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a classic. And that's mm -hmm. really a movie about parenting, and it's a movie about a man who discovers that his child has this unique gift for chess, and, and, and he becomes just swept away by it. And chess doesn't really lead anywhere. It's like, no. okay, it you make proves the other guy you're feel really, stupid really, and you leave. That's what you do. Yeah, it proves how smart you are, but you can get sucked down the rabbit hole of chess and not not ever want to come up for air. And it's interesting that kind of her 
drug use parallels her chess use because she's addicted to both. The obsessive it's, nature it, of her personality. Yeah. And it's it, also yeah. an interesting look at this world that very few people know anything about. I'll tell you, I'm blown away at how formal and how dark and how interesting these these chess groups are. And I read an article that said after this show was streamed, the World Chess website got 65 million hits. So apparently it's ignited this whole, you know, chess thing. It was fa It's fascinating. The acting was spectacular. It's really yeah. a wonderful series. It's really, really great. What do and you I'm going to recommend, because I have to, it's the law, the Bee Gees, How Can You oh, Mend a Broken Heart? Yes. So the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart chronicles the triumphs and hurdles of brothers Barry, Morris, and Robin Gibb. The Bee Gees found early fame in the 60s and went on to write over 1,000 songs and score 20 number one hits throughout their career, transcending more than five decades of changing tastes and styles. Directed by Frank Marshall with producers Nigel Sinclair and Jean Elfont Festa, the film is an intimate exploration of the Gibbs story, featuring revealing interviews with oldest brother Barry and archival interviews with the late twin brothers Robin and Morris. The film features a wealth of never-before-seen archival footage of recording sessions, concert performances, TV appearances, and home videos, as well as interviews with Eric Clapton, Noel Gallagher, Nick Jonas, Chris Martin, Justin Timberlake, Mark Ronson, Lulu, and Bill Oakes, among others. Now, I am a devout Bee Gees fangirl, having grown up on the Mills Brothers, the Cowsills, the Osmonds, and the Bee Gees. They love was, them, too. They love the Mills Brothers. Yes, absolutely. And I was always drawn to sibling harmonies. And it's not just the magic of the genetically woven chords. It's also, for me, that the music feels like the sound that love makes. And of course, you know that there are rivalries and conflicts and jealousies, as with any siblings. But the voices connected in song are evidence that the most powerful force at work in the universe is love. Well said. You know what my favorite part of the movie was? Yeah. Um, back in the 80s, this momentarily famous DJ Steve Dahl at the Loop oh, in Chicago yeah. did turn this whole disco sucks thing on where it was people's big reaction to disco and they had a big thing at White Sox Stadium where they burned disco records but the revelation in the movie was how racist that was because they showed piles of records that included Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and this black writer that was sort of a side commenter in the movie said this was so racist these weren't even disco records and I thought to myself beautiful this would have been a Trump rally were it 30 years later. Right. And it was also a reaction against what was then the burgeoning uh, underground gay culture. And I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought, you know what, get over yourselves. If you don't like the music, stop listening. But they, they literally blew up records. They exploded them. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it looked like a book burning. It looked like a hate-filled rage, you know, just kind of yeah. crazy reaction to something that I didn't realize. I was too young to realize really what the problem was. It's like, oh, you're just... You're sick of this song? Okay, I get it, but you do, do, you, do you need to blow things up on account of it? Yeah. I didn't and, realize and it you, was reacting to the fear of a culture that they weren't ready to recognize. That's was, what it was. And, and, and the Bee Gees should have been above, separate, and apart from that group because individually their songs were so beautifully uh, created that they weren't like a typical one-hit wonder disco band. They were beautiful songs. The, 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 the rhythm just happened to be dance music. So they were sort of 
victimized by that whole thing, and I thought unjustifiably so. Yeah, and the whole thing that was so weird to me was that this soundtrack exists in every home in America. So how can we be this angry at it that we actually went out and all purchased it? We all own this record. So what what are you doing? What is this? But I was fortunate enough that I got to interview the Bee Gees three times and I was struck by how funny they are. I mean, not Sean funny. Well, maybe Robin. But with that, I would like to bring in my lovely guest. Please welcome Sean Pulaski. Yay, Sean oh. Pulaski. Hi, guys. Welcome, I love Sean. the Bee Gees. Right? I love yeah. I mean, I was barely born then. <laughs> yeah. I loved the Bee Gees. You Tragedy, were. best song of almost all time. All time. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, if you, look, this documentary is full of some, there's going all the way back to Massachusetts and How Do You Mend a Broken Heart. There was some just some spectacular songwriting in there, whether or not they were disco rhythms or not. They were everything. The Bee Gees were songwriters. They yeah. weren't. You're right. They just became so popular in one specific genre that they had to deal with the backlash of that. And mm -hmm. when I interviewed them, some of the times there was some, they were angry. You know, it really, it was very, very frustrating. Imagine just being pinned on something that was, you know, part of the body of the lifetime of work. And then you're not able to get out from underneath that. So they went on and they wrote for, you know, Kenny and Dolly and Barbara Streisand. They did all, you know, they did, they, they kept surviving. That's what you do. When you're when you're an artist, you just keep finding a way to create your art, and that's what they did. So I want to tell you a little bit about Sean. Speaking of artists, Sean grew up as one of the ten Jews in Oklahoma, performing. <laughs> I survived. Yeah, she survived. Performing since the age of eight, she received a BA in theater at USC, where she also joined the Comedus Interruptus Improv Group. Uh, moving on to train at the Groundlings. By the age of 20, Sean Pulaski was performing sketches and improv with Will Ferrell as she developed her art at the Acme Comedy Theater and moved into stand-up, becoming a paid regular at the world-famous Comedy Store. Sean has entertained the troops all over the world in Afghanistan, Bosnia, Bahrain, and Guantanamo Bay. She performs weekly on, their inf on the Comedy Store's main room stage, and she has performed she has been featured in the Montreal Just for Laughs Comedy Festival and in the all-female hit comedy tours, Pretty Funny Women, Nice Jewish Girls Gone Bad, and The Hot Tamales. Her gay following is her crown jewel, and she is a proud ally of the LGBTQIA plus community. She has opened for Richard Lewis, Robert Klein, and Bill Maher, and written for comedic le legend Joan Rivers on Fashion Police. Currently, she is a producer for the hilarious CBS game show, Funny You Should Ask. Her television and film credits include the new... Hit one-hour comedy special, Stretch It Out, on Amazon Community, Chelsea Lately, Weather Gone Viral, The Gossip Queens, Comics Unleashed, Minding the Store, The Last Comic Standing, and Free Enterprise starring William Shatner. So, Sean, would you please talk to us about your hit comedy store and YouTube and Instagram show, Social Media Meltdowns? Oh, I would love to. I think, like, you, were, you guys were showing pictures from my website, and I was like, Hmm, I think I need some more gay men pictures. <laughs> Before I mean, you like, answer the question, just let me say one thing to you. I'm not trying to embarrass you. You won't remember me, but I auditioned to be one of your underwear-clad male models for a photo shoot. <laughs> you said my package wasn't big enough and blew me out the door. We didn't even have a conversation. Did you get and a callback? I, I never got a, I, no, I got a callback. I got a please exit now and never return. That's what I got. <laughs> I, I'd like to apologize for that moment. I mean, I, I have to admit, I am a size queen. But <laughs> I, I, 
I, I'm so sorry. You, you definitely have talent. We were just looking for more uh, girth. Nice. So, thank you. so thank you for auditioning. They were going I, in a different direction. And I do uh, love you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have some attractive humans on your website, I'll tell you that. Of all well, types you of know, usually most gay men are. I know. If they're not. And then when you start to hang around them as much as I do, well, not lately. Lately, I'm just in my slash kitchen uh, living room. With your menorah. Living the life. But um, when, when you hang around with gay men, you kind of start to pick up their mannerisms a little bit. So, like, I remember a couple of years ago, I was at the, uh, the infamous gay bar, the Abbey, and it's notorious, like, you know, good looking people everywhere. And they have the go-go dancers. And there was a guy, you know, and he was in his nut hugger and he was dancing and he had a six pack and he was doing everything, but I still like something wasn't, he still had a little bit something around his waist. And for me, I was like, the, you know, guys, we were standing there looking at him and I was like, he's fat. Like that came out of my mouth. Like there may have been maybe an, an, an extra inch on him that shouldn't have been anywhere that you start to become a little critical. Yeah. So uh, I do have a, a beautiful group that I do hang around and it's uh, it's nice. It's, they're a lot of fun. Well, you know what? I got to tell you, uh, having a big gay base was important to Joan Rivers, important to Kathy Griffin. I mean, people have built huge global careers out of having a big gay fan base. Judy. And hopefully one day I can work uh, my way to the middle to be just like them. No, 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 no. You're, you're on your way. Tell us about social media meltdowns. Well, social media meltdowns, it started uh, literally, I'm going to say, about two, almost two years ago. We're coming on that mark because time has passed. But I started it uh, at the comedy store in the belly room. And basically it was a show and it started out as a show titled Facebook Rants. And it was just kind of this idea I had sat on for a while and decided just to kind of put it to life. And it was a live show at the Comedy Store in the Belly Room where uh, comedians, stand-up comedians and variety artists would find real people's posts from social media or comments or reviews from places like Yelp, Amazon. And then they would bring them to the stage and perform them either any way they liked, uh, as the character they think that wrote it, as an impersonation of somebody. Uh, they could sing it. They could use it with puppets anyway, or they could just be the comedian that they are and read it and then have verbal commentary, you know, to the audience. And it just is something that kind of grew really, really fast. It took off like after the first show, it took off by like the third show. I had Forbes magazine in there to review it. They loved it. And people started coming in to see what this show was about because it's something, social media, something that's never going away. It's only growing and with time and especially with the pandemic, people will say anything. Verbal diarrhea is everywhere. The overshare is in. <laughs> and sometimes you just can't believe what you're reading, you're thinking, God, what would this, what was this person like? Or what is this person like who's saying this? So literally comedians, names, all types, up and coming people, anybody, they come to the stage and they take something like from next door and <laughs> they bring it to life. And it's so fun and so creative. And then basically when we went on lockdown, I had to kind of 
think outside the box. So my friend Judy Lewinson, who's an, also an amazing comedian and producer and editor, she convinced me to put the show online and comedians would just submit from their homes and they got really creative and they would submit those. And then every Friday I would unveil a new YouTube show and I named it Social Media Meltdowns because I can't really own the name Facebook. Mm. And <laughs> okay, but I have a question. Have you done an Inception episode where you read comments from your own YouTubes? No, no. I, 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 some people have. I don't think I have enough. You know, usually mine are pretty nice, gay-based and nice. But um, once in a while, you'll see a doozer. Like uh, my, my comedy special has some pretty mean reviews. So I could probably do that. But there are people that do like Maz Jabrani, who is an amazing, you know, international comedian and personality. That guy, every time he performs for us, he goes to his Twitter and like the guy doesn't have a mean bone in his body. He may He's be a sweetie. the nicest yeah. person you're going to meet in the business and in stand-up comedy. Ultra successful and ultra kind. And yet somehow there are trolls on there that come after him and he will he's one of those people that will come to the stage and he does you know just he's vulnerable like that and he puts he'll read some twitter exchange with some guy that's telling him oh you didn't do you know i'm not you were doing an indian accent but the guy you're imitating is pakistani and this is him and he's really good at accents so, i mean he's He's Iranian, so yeah. and he's married, you know, to an Eastern Indian woman. So when he's doing accents, they are superb. But you know, it's comedy, and then people are so nitpicky, and they start just saying things. But it's just so funny to hear his take on what these people are saying to him, and him just bringing it to life. I'll tell you, there's one on there that uh, Brian Monarch did. In Brian Monarch. In your latest episode, where this, the guy he was doing was off, what made it amusing was, it's crazy that somebody had so much vitriol on social media, but I, I kind of worried about Brian. I thought, did he get any pushback from that? Because this was crazy. Well, what Brian was doing was, it wasn't Brian's post. Brian... No, he took somebody else's post and yes, acted it out. Yeah, these are all, uh, usually they're all other people's. Once in a while, people like Jody Miller is a funny comic. She'll read a personal message sent to her on Facebook by a crazy fan. And they just degrade, you know, like they talk about her age. And yet they talk about how they'd like to sexually be. It's, it's nuts some of the people, <laughs> stuff that people receive. But for the most part, people are taking other people's stuff and making, poking fun at that. So Brian found he found, I forget what the title of it is called, it's escaping me, but on our Instagram page where he's featured, I think you can see what the title of his, uh, of, of this post that went viral on something called 4chan. Ooh. Oh, right, they're crazy. That's and, the QAnon group and everything. Yeah, well, and yeah. So this, I guess it was a military, an ex-military guy who claimed he was a Navy SEAL, and he's mad at somebody. So he's calling the guy out, and he's like, I have over, like, 500 confirmed kills. And, I mean, it's just some nutty guy. I, know, I couldn't believe it. I just wondered if Brian, did Brian get any pushback for that, or did the guy ever No, him? not at all. Brian got nothing but praise. So when Brian took that and put it on our show, and when he sent me 
his his performance, the genius of it was my editor took, because it was just Brian sitting there with the mm-hmm. headband around his head. <laughs> and I think he, he grabbed like a, a knife or something when he, you know, went into full like AWOL mode. Uh, but my <laughs> editor was the one that added, like, as soon as he started started to read, she put, she made it like a cartoon and she turned it into comic booky type she of- tra- She <laughs> changed his voice, which was really cool. Yeah, and then she changed his voice to when he started, you know, reading- the post and his voice starts to sound like this, you know, it's <laughs> altered. And, and then it said somewhere in uh, his mother's basement, she posted that. <laughs> so I think it's like, you know, it was another level of taking something that was very creative and very funny, crazy post that was publicly out there. And that guy got a lot of slack, you know, when he was on fortune, I mean, when, when it went viral, that guy got a lot of shit. Oh yeah. But From Brian to take it. Yeah, it was it was it was fun. It is is definitely my top five favorite social media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good example of how humor can diffuse something really terrifying. Mm -hmm. It's pretty shocking. I mean, my my favorite thing is to really find uh, are are these bridezillas and there's a ton of them. (laughs) And if you just go into uh, there's uh, oh God, what again? I can't think of. uh, Oh, Something about uh, it's called like effed up things about brides or something. It's on Reddit. Okay. And there are so many posts of these brides or am I an asshole? They have that on Reddit. (laughs) (laughs) To find where you look and it's just these brides after brides saying, I'm not going to let COVID stop my special day. I've invited 500 guests and I don't. (laughs) And I've asked them to, you know, as a gift, $1,000 each. That's not much to ask. Like, there's so many things that people have posted to Facebook that people just will put out there. And then it becomes a news article. It, be- it goes viral. And those are some of my favorite, these entitled brides that just have zero Fs to give. I think if the name of the column is Am I an Asshole? I can shortcut this for them. If you're posting here, yes. <laughs> yes. So let's talk Bachelorette because you and I are both obsessed. Yes. And now we have like our fantasy La Quinta quarantine season where, you know, your date is like go around the corner to the alcove where they keep the luggage carts and um, a a surprise will be waiting for you. Oh, look, it's scooters. So (laughs) just let me get your take on the whole season to begin with. And then we'll talk about like what happened with Claire and now Tasha because it's crazy this season. Yes. Well, here's the thing. I'm a very deep person. I watch. Oh, yeah. Like, Fritz, you're watching stuff like the Queen's Gamut, which I do watch. But if if I have to pick and choose, it's reality TV. Reality. Oh, no. I want to get into that. You love all like the real housewives of name a zip code. Yeah. I love it because it makes me feel better about myself. Yes, of course. That's which is so important. And (laughs) you watch something. I mean, everybody loves Love. If you don't love love, then you should post. Am I on an? Am I an asshole? <laughs> you gotta love love. And I, I was fortunate enough. I had met my husband uh, a couple, probably about like seven years ago, and he's Brazilian. And Brazilians, there's no one who loves to love more than Brazilians, and that's why they love the telenovelas and everything in Brazil. When you when you go there, everybody's making out everywhere. It's like <laughs> I'm at the DMV. And what's 
exciting about the, the Bachelor and the Bachelor and why that show has been this mega machine success is because it's about love and you want to you want to believe in in that this can happen, that everyone can have their fairy tale. Now, do the fairy tales always work? No. And are they a train wreck? Yes. So I am I am in it 100% with bated breath. This season was different. Why? And this is this is why this season had to be good because every season takes place at this big mansion. And like you said. Wheezy, this one this year, this one happened in a quarantine. Now, officially it was supposed to take you know place at a mansion. And finally, they were gonna bring in a bachelorette that wasn't 25, <laughs> wasn't even 30. Oh no, oh no, this bachelorette was what? <gasps> 39, <laughs> she's practically dead. Okay? <laughs> and so you bring in this 39-year-old woman who had been on a previous bachelor, Sean, she'd been on like 10 or 15 bachelors. Right. Had not only been on a previous bachelor, that's what I'm getting to, yeah. had been on like 19 after show, bachelor in paradise, bachelor, winter bachelor. Bachelor on, on ice skates. Yes. She had been on everything and anything bachelor. Claire Crawley. Nobody wanted to be with this girl. Again. <laughs> She was a crying Pisces mess. She's a train Always wreck. <laughs> she could be she could be 109. It doesn't matter her age. She presents beautifully. She's a train wreck. Yes. And right before quarantine, that when they were finishing up The Last Bachelor, they always announce on the final episode of The Bachelor, the final tell-all, everything, they announce the new Bachelorette. So they bring her out. The whole audience is like, oh, my gosh. It's, you know, after being on The Bachelor, Bachelor for like 19 seasons, it's going to be this girl. She's going to find love. And this is how unlucky this girl is. Just as they start <laughs> filming, a coronavirus happens. <laughs> And the lockdown happens. And I, my husband and I were laughing. We're like, this girl is going to be alone. No one's going to. So it was such a buildup that they figured a way around it. And they quarantined all these bachelors and the bachelorette in La, La Quinta. La Quinta. In, in La Quinta, La Quinta. It's La a resort Quinta. in Palm Springs. Right. Right. And it's this fantastic Waldorf Astoria resort that looks like it's the size of Texas. And, and so they quarantine all the people there for, I don't know how long. It seems like they're there for like three months before they start filming. And then they bring this girl out and all these guys are so excited because they've just been there for so long. And this girl comes out, guns a-blazing. And I think it took her 25 whole seconds to, to find her person. And it was crazy. And you had to believe, like, how did she just, she was like, the minute she met him, she was like, that's my husband. And she was crying immediately. And these guys were all in love with her immediately because they really hadn't seen a woman in like nine months. They'd right. all been staring at themselves in a quarantine. And she was, I'm going to say, again, hands down, this was the best season of the bachelorette every season they say it's the most dramatic rose ceremony it's the most this was this was the best season ever because this girl is a hundred percent kookaloo she's off the rails she's erratic 
she's crying. Granted, they all cried. This one, she can't, even in an interview, a basic interview, like, how was your day? How was my day? <laughs> Everything. It starts immediately. And she fell in love immediately with this beautiful man. And she just kind of shoved the other guys aside, like episode three. Yeah, it was like, Claire, do you understand how the show works? You have to pretend to date the other people. She was like, no, get out of my way. You're blocking my view of Dale. Move. I mean, the other guys were just beside themselves because they every rose party ended in tears because no one the guys are crying because no one got a chance to talk to to Claire. She's now because they're all staying at La Quinta. She's in a bungalow with Dale for the whole night. Then she emerges with her hair askew and her outfit a little crooked. And the guys are like, we think something may have happened. And she's like, I can't go on dates. I can't pretend. I need to marry Dale tomorrow. Yeah. It was Just crazy. Nutty McNutterson. And, and yeah. there's nothing better. And this is, again, why The Bachelor is good. And the Bachelorette, men crying. I'm oh, sorry. They were crying. And then they, the next day, they wheel in another Bachelorette. And mm-hmm. boom, Sean, take it from there. And in comes Tasha. Now, they couldn't just bring in any bachelorette. You know, Claire was already filming mid Black Lives Matter. And the bachelor, that whole, <laughs> the whole network, everybody had to face themselves. When Black Lives Matter was prominent in, in the past like nine months, and everybody had to come to the forefront immediately, I think like, the first day, the voucher was like, we announce ABC voucher. We have our first, you know, black bachelor. And they, you know, finally, what is it like 29 years? You finally can put a, an African-American man in the loop. Like what took you so long? So in the mid season, now you've got Claire and she's gone. They got to put somebody in the mix. So who did they go? They picked Tasha, and Tasha is a mixed knockout girl with knockers that make. I mean, I'm like a 32G, and listen, she makes my she makes me look like Yento with my my boobs. <laughs> and this girl comes in Orange County, Orange County. She sounds like this, and she's she's a lovely person, and she's smart. She's not a dummy. She's not the typical dummy that they got as the bachelorette. This girl has got wits to her and she's kind. And she comes in and it doesn't matter. Now she's already once divorced, but who cares? That doesn't matter. There's a bunch of men who've been in quarantine. Claire left, leaving them high and dry, blue balled. And here comes this girl and she's gonna be the one. And they are all fumbling over themselves. And each guy that's left, nobody, there's maybe like one guy with a job because none of them have a job and there's one guy left and you know, that, that is remotely redeemable and the rest all have massive problems. I've never seen a bachelorette season with guys that have so many problems. I'm not saying everybody doesn't have problems, but like one guy was like, I have an eating disorder and he has like a 12 pack. But I was like, an eating disorder? These guys, Sean, they sit there with her and they pour their hearts out. I have something I have to reveal to Taisha. Taisha, I've I've stolen drugs. I've stolen drugs too. I've killed a man. 
I killed a man. I mean, she's just relating to all of them. It's nuts. Yeah, the, I, I got to be honest. I, I think I'm a nice person and I dated a lot, a lot before I got married. And I always gave everybody a chance. But the minute someone tells me, you know, hey, I've been in and out of drug rehab. Now, and you knew that, that this guy, you didn't even have to hear that this was this guy's story because he's a drug rehab counselor. So good for him for doing what he does. But just saying, just saying, I've been in and out. Oh, and I knew I was at the bottom when I was, I took a, a check up from my father's bank and I wrote it to myself and I went to the bank. And oh, you know, and it's like one thing after another. This guy just keeps him and she can't love him more. Is she, he's like the he, one, right, Sean? She likes Zach. I, I think she likes Zach. She, and he, he's and he, he's a little bit like this, you know, his faces. And I can't, I can't listen to Zach. Okay. And I don't care. She, her choices are terrible. For a smart girl, for a kind girl, her, her choices, what, the guy she's leaning to, leaning, they're bad. There's one guy, there's one or two guys, the roofer. He's very sweet. The roofer. I but think she should marry the roofer. He's the roofer. There'd you know? always be a roof over their heads. Exactly. He's going to have a job. There's always yeah. going to be roofs. But yeah, then there's good. also, there's a, there's an engineer. I like that guy. What about that Riley, the lawyer? Work. Riley, the lawyer? No, Ry world's mm -hmm. most intense. He was, he's a Scorpio. By, okay. I mean, like you. Scorpio. <laughs> you know too much about these people. Right. Right. I know. So, Fritz, I have a question for you. No, I'm have not answering any questions. Have you ever watched more than five minutes of The Bachelor or The Bachelor? I've never seen it. Never okay. seen it. But uh, but you answered a question for me, and I and I always thought you have to suspend your disbelief so much to think that this is real romance. This is manipulative, um, spoiled, narcissistic behavior. We do uh, know that. Fritz. But I but but now you're you're explaining to me that you love it for its entertainment value because people are nuts and that I can it's, appreciate. It's theatrical. Yes. It's theatrical. I mean, if you've ever watched the show Unreal, which is another show I would recommend you guys check out, which I just started watching because I have an idea for a bad Christmas movie, but I'm watching the show Unreal and they it's on Hulu and it, what it is is it was on Lifetime. It was a behind, it's a very dark look at behind the scenes, a dramatic look of uh, what really, I think a girl, uh, I think there was a producer from The Bachelor that created this. And so it's a drama that's based on what would go on behind the scenes and how they manipulate these people. Yes, with like Constance, uh, what's her last name, Zimmer. Cause it, she, they're, they're all so good on this. And it's so dark that I do look at The Bachelorette and The Bachelor differently. I do look at it and I can tell you when the producers, but as, as being a producer, except, you know, I worked on a game show, but you, there are times where you're sitting with the talent and you're like, listen, I'm going to need you to go this way. Or when you answer this, this way, and you, there are moments where you have to manipulate them a little bit and I have seen that side, but to watch how what they show on this show unreal, you do look at it differently. And I'm like, oh, the producers came in and did this. Like when you watch 90 Day Fiance, another another shit show that is so popular, probably the most popular reality show there is right now. And to watch 
how, you know, no way did someone just think to do that. And you see the manipulation and you will look unreal is shocking. You know what? I, I'm telling you, I think you have a pilot where you and I could see Bravo buying this pilot uh, uh, where you do a postmortem on the week's reality shows, just the way you just riffed there for 15 minutes about The Bachelor. I think people would tune in in droves. And maybe you don't just do The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. You do all these shows and do a little compilation. I can't remember the guy's name that was on uh, Community, who before that, Joel, oh, yeah. had, had Talk Soup, which was exactly that, but it wasn't quite as funny and energetic as snarky as what you're making. <laughs> I'm telling you, I think that would make a spectacular pilot. Well, thank you, Fritz. That's very kind of because you. Because you could turn your obviously psychotic obsession into a career. <laughs> well, Fritz, uh, Sean has another obsession, and it's Christmas movies. Bad and Christmas so, movies, yeah. And, and she loves bad Christmas movies. And so I came up with a little quiz, and we're going to see how well she does, because I was watching her on another podcast. You can say the name of it because it's a, you're a cute friend of yours who did it. And uh, Sean's obsessed with Christmas movies. So, Sean, are you ready to play our game? Yeah, and by the way, um, not that you had to guess, but uh, we all know I'm Jewish. Why? Oh, you mean I'm that menorah in the background isn't just a prop? <laughs> That's her Zoom game. Uh -huh. You guys get it? Did you, did you figure it out yet? <laughs> She's completely Christian. That is part of her Zoom game. Uh, okay, are you ready to play our game? Here we go. Yes. Operation Christmas Drop. Who's yes. in it? What happens? Okay. This is features Cat Graham, who was, I think, for a minute, a singer on the she's on the Vampire Diaries. I even met her once at the White Party in Palm Springs. <laughs> so suddenly now, she, I hate to name drop, but hey. So now, <laughs> Graham some, suddenly, suddenly has become the darling of bad Christmas movies. Oh, uh, and she's pulling the reins a little bit from the other darling. Vanessa Hudgens. Okay. So Kat Graham, and I was kind of forced to watch this. This wasn't my decision. I was forced to watch this with comedian Vicki Barbalat. That'll happen, yeah. And her daughters, because mm -hmm. they are the ones who love bad Hallmark movies. Mm -hmm. So this movie takes place. It is based off a real operation that happened in 1952 with the U.S. Uh, Air Force and they would do this, uh, they, would, they would drop all these goods in Guam to help the people of Guam around Christmas. So this movie's based off that idea. And so Kat plays some congressional aide, because like the Congresswoman <laughs> can't go herself. She's busy with Congresswoman things. And so she sends pretty Kat to Guam, which by the way, everyone is Mexican in Guam. I don't Netflix special. So you get there, everyone's Mexican, and I'm like, mm, I'm pretty sure I'm Mexican. You get to Guam, and she goes, and she has to meet with the captain, and the captain is like this seven foot two German blonde blue eyed dream. I mean, he's not German, but he might as well be. And the guy is super hot, and she's just I mean, she's a total bitch to him. Like, what's this? What's this thing you're doing? I think you're doing something sneaky with the government's money. And so, you know, he kind of tries to hide it first. See that? That's yeah. a Nazi right there. So, 
You're, she's trying, and, and, and first of all, and she's dressed all con, you know, Congresswoman A. You're in a, you're on an island. You don't have to be dressed like you're going to the White House. And so she's on the island. And he keeps kind of trying to hide from her how they're doing this operational drop th th with stuff that will help the people. And finally, she kind of like stumbles across it, and she's again, she's really rude to him. He keeps sneaking off to do things, and then. Finally, she sees he shows her what he's doing, and she, you know, kind of lets her guard down at like some some tiki torch dinner, <laughs> and they fall in love. And then the congresswoman shows up to the uh -oh. island to see what they're doing, which is played by who? Of course, Virginia Madsen. Sure. Why wouldn't she? I'm like, what happened to Virginia? Virginia, you're a great actress. <laughs> Why? You won for sideways. Why are we on operational drop here? But she plays the scene, doesn't, doesn't care. She's going to get the job done. And then they take her on, you know, one of those planes to do the drop to the people. And she sees the people receive all, all, the, all the stuff that's been packed up for them to help the community. And then the problem's been solved. And Cat falls in love with this tall Nazi and it's always happily ever after. That is the roots. It's A plus B equals C. There, and there's right. usually always, there's always romance. Like a, oh, I bumped into this guy. There's always romance in these bad Christmas movies. There's usually a prince and a time machine. Okay, <laughs> well, let's do the night before Christmas. Night is spelled with a K. Okay, night before Christmas has all three, has, well, and four, has Oh, no, no, no. Yes. Vanessa Hudgens, okay. number one. Formula. Has, uh, Vanessa Hudgens, she's unlucky in love. She's in this small town. And one day she stumbles across this guy who has amnesia. 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 <laughs> amnesia. Amnesia. And he is, a, he is actually a knight. So where another thing comes into play a time machine. Time so travel, yes. Back in time, in order, for, I don't know why, in order for him to become a true knight, he has to go back in time to a small town to meet Vanessa Hudgens. Sean, you yeah. do know why. It's a Christmas miracle. Yes, so go he goes to the small town, he's in his knight outfit, he's acting like a knight. She thinks, you know, she's gonna help him regain his memory. And then she realizes <laughs> he's really a knight. And she's in love. <laughs> and he has to go back in the time machine. And then he goes back and somehow he gets back to Vanessa, Vanessa Hudgens and it's love happily ever after. Okay, let's do the Christmas Prince because royalty is involved often, you said. Okay. The Christmas, the Christmas Prince. The Christmas Prince. This again involves a prince the girl falling in love. I forget who the lead is, but it's a, a beautiful blonde girl and she's a journalist. And again, nobody can do the story. So she's been sent to find the story on some real royal who's kind of like known to be a playboy, a philanderer, Prince Richard, Prince Dick, if you may. And <laughs> he's got to find the story because Prince Dick is supposed to take the throne, but nobody can find Prince Dick anywhere. <laughs> and so this girl is a journalist and she goes to get this story and all these journalists are there and they're all shut down. Like he's not showing up. 
you're not going to get to meet him. You don't, you can't get the story. So somehow she stumbles across like what I think is the palace. And she pretends that she's the, the tutor to one of the, the princess, you know, princess, Prince Dick's sister. And they're like, okay, you're the tutor. There's no background check, nothing. <laughs> it's the and she the tutor to this young little prince, princess who's kind of snarky and has made sure to get rid of every tutor before her. And okay. they become besties. And what do you know? Prince Dick isn't a philanderer. Philanderer, I can't speak today. But he is and, drunk. Yes, and philanderer. And <laughs> they fall in love and she becomes a princess. Now, so I this is like a, Roman Holiday meets The Sound of Music. Yes, and there is a sequel, which I haven't had the opportunity to watch yet, which oh. is, I think, The Christmas Prince, A Royal Wedding. Okay, something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Now, Sean. Wow. Yeah. That now, Fritz, have you watched, do you watch the Christmas movies? No. No. So this is, it's a this wonderful is education. Life. That's it. Miracle That's on 34th it. We're, we're Street. Done. Okay, That's we're it. good. So tell us uh, about your own international love story, Sean. Pulaski Oliveira, your hot Latin uh, husband, Hafi. Pulaski Oliveira, doesn't that? I saw, he sounds like a bullfighter, doesn't it's he? It's a lot of syllables with vowels. I wish I yeah. could have just changed my name earlier. I wish I'd met him earlier so I could have just become Sean Oliveira. But Pulaski, you know what you're getting when I walk into the room. You're like, uh, she's going to play the Jew. So, uh, yeah, I, I met Hoppy about seven years ago, and Wheezy's always been supportive. She knew all about my escapades and my love life. And uh, in front of me was a, a guy that my friend, one of my gays, had introduced me to, and he brought him to a comedy show. And uh, he'd known that I had liked, I like my men brown. I like, I like them brown. And uh, I, he's Brazilian. And so uh, I knew that. And I met him like about a minute before the show. And I kind of just didn't really think much about it. And he was in the second row and I picked on him a little. And uh, that, that was the story. And then. Uh, just like Claire, Claire and Dale. Yeah. I cried a lot. You know, I knew, I said, that's my person after 30 <laughs> seconds. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I really didn't see it coming. And he was already planning to leave the States. He had had a work visa and he'd been here for already about a year and a half, but he missed Brazil and he was headed home. And he told me on our first day, oh yeah, I'm leaving in like two months. I'm headed home. And I kind of didn't think much of it. And by our second date, I knew that he was someone I really enjoyed and wanted to pursue. And we kind of never really left each other's side. I mean, of course, with an immigration attorney, he had to go back to Brazil. And then he came back in on a tourist visa and we got married within seven months, which was pretty crazy. We didn't do the K-1 visa. We didn't do the uh, the K-1 visa is the fiance visa, which is what 90 day fiance is based on. I'm very happy we didn't do that that way. We did it the old fashioned way. We're like coming to the States, pretend you're a tourist and oh, hey, we're going to get married. So (laughs) we don't have to jump through hoops. You still now he's on your Twitter feed and in your hot tub. A lot of testosterone right there. Look at that. (laughs) Oh, he's very handsome. So poor Hoppy, I have to I, I put him to work in videos. Oh, he's very time. good. He's he's yeah, he's very good. I think he kind of likes it. He definitely gets a big kick out of you, so that's the fun of it. I want to talk now, about sh- improv. Ask her about improv. Yeah. I'm fascinated by improv. Now, 
Comedians Interruptus was a it was a company at USC. Is that where you started? Yeah, it was actually a improv group that started at USC, and it would perform. This group would perform every Friday in front of the Doheny Library on the lawn. And I joined that because when I went to the USC School of Theater, everything that was taught at USC was all dramatic. It was all, you know, I had professors that were like, you're going to learn, you know, uh, Meisner method or the Stanislavski. And I was like, I don't want to peel an orange. I don't want to go to the zoo and pretend I'm a giraffe. I want to do comedy and not necessarily stand up, but, you know, as a child, I always did impersonations and characters and I loved SNL. That was like my dream. And so when I, went to school at USC, I was looking for outlets to be funny. And I was also training with the groundlings really early in my, my freshman year at USC. And so I wanted to do something where I could practice my improvisational skills. And I joined this group, Comedians Interruptus, and every Friday, there's probably about like eight or nine of us. And I, I heard it's still there. And uh, there were some really great improvisational actors and it was a lot of fun you know really the more you do it the better you get at it if you stop doing improv your brain i just have so much respect for people to do that um and do it well because you just have it's like hang gliding naked it's just you you have to free yourself and allow yourself to interact and i've just it's it's not part of my skill set did you see the belushi documentary sean I haven't, but I would like to watch that. I'll tell what you, that? It, 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 it's on Showtime. And mm. um, the one of the revelations was when he first started at Second City, it was like the first time he had done one of the start groups there. He realized that's what he wanted to do. But people commented that the first time he went on stage, people were convinced that a star was being born out of this because he just drew such focus and all attention was on John, even if he wasn't the primary character in the sketch and everybody knew that he was going to be a major star because he just had this thing. And I thought, what a, what a gift. I saw that. I, I saw that when I was in Groundlings, again, I was 19 years old, which was like 10 years ago. But um, I, I saw that in Will Ferrell. He was a bank mm -hmm. teller. Yeah. Yeah. He graduated from USC. He was young and he was a bank teller. And the first time he went on stage and I watched him, I was like, this guy doesn't have an unfunny body. <laughs> yeah. he, everything yeah. he did was dead on funny. Never. He never had not a sketch he wrote. And sometimes when they would they would give us this exercise, like, okay, you're you're a person, someone opens the door and you're the person at the door. You have five minutes to write the sketch. And everyone would just be clamoring, like, what am I writing? What am I doing? And I felt a lot of pressure because I was in these companies. I was in a company with Alex Borstein, Dan Bukatinsky, Steve Callahan, who's the executive producer of of Family Guy. I mean, I came up with a lot of really strong people. And it was intimidating to watch someone like Will Ferrell make it look like it was it was like breathing. Always mm -hmm. good, 
always funny. And there's just certain people you put your eyes on. And I, young, knew, I watched him and how people react, audiences reacted mm-hmm. to him. You knew yeah. that he was going to be something. And, and I love the way, you know, he brings a joy to it. You know, Belushi brought a darkness to it. It's everyone's different and they and they each have that something different that they that they pull from themselves that it that impacts the, their work. It's fascinating. Well, I think it's I think it's important too. I think improv, you know, what if I'm ever speaking at, a, at a, my, any of my friends that teach stand up, if they ever ask me to come on as a guest speaker, the first thing I say is take improv because as a standup, yes, you could be good as a standup. As you all know, you guys are seasoned professionals and each standup, you got to work hard. You got to get up to, to do and be funny and write. But also I believe I'm from the school of things go wrong. Things You're in front of a live audience. People speak out. And even if they don't, you crowd work, crowd work. It makes you good at crowd work. Crowd work. You never know what, what you're in front of. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing people love more, no matter how funny your written joke is, they love more. A live audience loves when you can work off your feet Mm -hmm. and bring everybody in. It's Mm -hmm. like their moment. And that's really what I kind of been working on really the past six, years, six years of my stand-up, my long stand-up career is really improving my improv skills and going back to it. And that's kind of like why the comedy store always puts me on first. I'm always on first because I'm, I'm not afraid. I don't have an ego about like, why am I not, why am I not in the middle? Why am I not? Head- I don't care about that. I love the challenge. I love when people come in, they just paid to sit down, another $25 per drink, $50 to park. And you've got to, you've got to disarm people. And especially in Los Angeles, you've got all walks of life. You've got people from not just different areas of California and, uh, but you've got people internationally. And if you can't, if that's the real gift, if you can make people that barely can speak English or from a different country and have a different type of sense of humor, laugh, then you're doing something right. And I think because I've been fortunate enough to be well-traveled with my career and been around the world that I can engage people and that I might know a little something about where they're from, you know, hopefully. And if not, then I'm going to fake it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think there's just a skill to that that you, I can always be better, that I always want to work and to, to uncover and, and see. Well, talk about, uh, talk about entertaining the troops because you get, Sean gets off the stage and she gets into the audience. She does it immediately. That's how she kind of owns the experience. Aaron or helps Foley calls pull. it taking it to the people. <laughs> and you pull, and but, but that mm-hmm. action, you pull people together like, oh, I see this is, this is a conversation. We're doing this together. So when you walk out into an audience full of uh, soldiers who are all armed, how do you, because you couldn't be more different in that moment, uh, your life experiences. So how well, do you really? at the time. I mean, again, you got to, you really have to, I think, prepare yourself for your audiences. And if you know Again, per se, when I'm entertaining on all gay male cruises with 6,000 men, it, that's a different audience. A lot more is going to fly there. And I'm going to gear my comedy 
towards them and their community. Now, as far as the truth, that comedy is not gonna, what I do for the gay men, is not gonna necessarily cross over for the military. Well, unless it's the Navy. But, you know, but you, you have to assess your audience and you have to see what you're in front of. And yes, you're in front of men and women in uniform. And sometimes they're holding M16s if they're deployed base and you're in Afghanistan. Oh, let's say, and here's another added element. It's, it's eight in the morning. You just landed in a Black Hawk. Oh, and there's, there's 15 people haven't had anybody come to their forward operating base. And you're, oh, there's no microphone system. And oh, you're on rocks. Okay, who cares? So you have to kind of look at your surrounding, <laughs> figure out what you're doing. You also, if you're smart enough, you find out who the highest ranking officer there is because you have free reign. You're just a civilian. You want to take someone down and, and roast them a little bit. That's, that's, that's what you can do. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, mm -hmm. I've taken, I've, 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 I've gunned for five-star generals. And that's that's ballsy move, ballsy ballsy move. <laughs> that approach in front of everybody—it's a total disrespect, and yet they they embrace it. Well, you you get to say what they wish they could but can't. So yes, 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 yes. They must fall. Out How of long their is a tour when you do that, Sean? Um, the longest one I've been on two two and a half weeks. Some are a little shorter, but two and a half weeks. I did one maybe about three weeks. That was through like Spain, Germany, Bosnia, the Netherlands. Uh, but Afghanistan's a couple of weeks, two weeks is usually the most. Oh, look at that. Wow. So now, Sean, you have a, a holiday tradition of sending out a Christmas card that you sort of personalize or that kind of exemplifies your year's worth of experiences <laughs> that you share with loved ones. Uh, so let's let's show the folks, uh, and you can describe these for those who are listening at home yeah. with their earbuds or in their car. Well, I'll tell you uh, take how it away, Sean. What do, we, what do we got? I did. Um, okay. We'll start with the one. I don't know if you guys have, but I have. I have this one right here. It's it's me and Ron Jeremy. Now I know he he's <laughs> in hot water right now. Okay, but yeah. at the time, yeah. and I'm talking. This is 2003. I performed, and I and no, don't judge. I performed uh, for a show called Giggles and Jiggles. Yes, you are correct. This was at the Key Club. It was porn stars would come up and do, I guess, some type of talent, and I don't mean the talent that they're used to, uh, but they would try their mm -hmm. hand at comedy, and the comedians would go on mm -hmm. in between. Well, I was on stage, okay. and I'd heard that Ron Jeremy was in the building. And so right. I made some jokes that Ron Jeremy is Jewish. And I'm like, oh my God, I would never have Ron Jeremy at my Seder. I'd be afraid he's already fucked Elijah. And so that was like, you know, my joke or whatever. So then I go downstairs to the green room and he's sitting there. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Ron Jeremy. So I'm like, can you know, I got this picture and I'm, I'm sitting on his lap. And he's like, so who's this Elja, Elja person I fucked? Like, he didn't even know who Elijah was. So that was the beauty of it. So obviously <laughs> he doesn't celebrate hmm. Pesach, Passover. How Jewish So I sit it? on his yeah. lap. We take a picture. And as we're taking a picture, I'm like, can you get chlamydia from someone's lap? And he <laughs> said no. And then I decided to make a holiday card out of it. So it says, Sean and Ron would like to wish you a happy and healthy 2003. So that was my holiday card. Now it goes out 
I get all these calls from girlfriends that are like, I'm horrified. Who is this boyfriend you have? We need to have a talk. They don't know who he is. <laughs> then I would get messages from their husbands and they're like, you're my God. I can't they're sitting on Ron Jeremy's lap. So that's kind of how it started. So this kind of B-list holiday card thing started. So I knew I had to up the ante. Well, the next year, sure. lo and behold, I'm sitting outside the comedy store. Who do I run into? Emmanuel Lewis. Webster. Now, how go. could I not get that picture? I said, that's going to make a good holiday card. Take a picture with Webster. Now, mind you, I'm wearing a low-cut shirt. Are you on his lap? Thinking. <laughs> and hmm. Here we are. You're on his lap. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, not on his lap. <laughs> This We're is how he, he looks side. like your right breast This is smiling. how you cropped it. So, Sean, describe how you cropped the photograph. I cropped it. So, where Webster's head comes to is right where 32G left boob <laughs> is with my low-cut top. So, he's smiling from ear to ear. Now, by this time, Webster's like 52. He but does he's not look unpleased. Head, right? Right. And uh, so, I cropped it where you just kind of see my boobs, my low-cut shirt, and Webster's smiling face with his arm <laughs> around my waist. And that year, it looks it like said, you have three boobs. <laughs> love, Emmanuel, Sean, and the twins. Oh, oh that's funny. And um, then um, you guys have the one, uh, Wheezy, the one that you love, which I'm is... Compl- do you want to do that uh, one next? Yeah. Okay, let's do that one next, Alex. I'm obsessed with this photograph for so many different reasons, so I among which... Yeah, go ahead. I I happened to be in Bosnia during yeah. in the during the anniversary of when the Bosnia War ended. Now this was years, maybe a couple years later, and I happened to be at one of the bases. And that day was the day we there was it was announced that Bill Clinton, who was no longer the president. But Bill Clinton was showing up at the base I was at. And he was going to give a speech to the base. And then you could have you could have dinner with Bill Clinton in the mess hall. And I'm kind of freaking out. I'm like, what? Bill Clinton's I'm going to be able to have lunch or dinner with Bill Clinton. (laughs) So I, I, you know. I got all ready. I had on, I guess it was like, you can't really see because my arm, but my sweater, you know, I always try to like give something to the troops, give a little. Okay. Okay. And I'm perfumed up. My sweater's a little tight. Okay. So I go in the missile. Everyone's stopping to meet Bill Clinton. He's shaking hands with everybody. So finally I get up there. I, I, I realize I'm the only woman in the, in the room. And I'm a Jewish woman, a Jewish, you know, voluptuous woman. I get the past, but I'm like, I'm going to go meet Bill Clinton. Well, I go to meet Bill Clinton and, and the Secret Service, before I can get there, literally this is, it looks like I'm photobombing him because I couldn't get to him. He had his tray. I was just going to introduce myself, but the Secret Service pulled me away before I could even get to him. And I never got to meet him because they saw me coming. They were like, 
Jewish, uh, bodacious girls coming towards Bill Clinton. She posed a threat as being very, very specifically his type. So she was wrestled to the ground before he could lay (laughs) eyes on her. And there he is filling his tray and Sean cuts in line. Yeah, he's he's in line getting like his okra. (laughs) He eats healthy now that he's had some heart issues. And she just completely photobombs the whole buffet line and points at Bill. And he's oblivious. It's the greatest picture I've ever seen. Well, it's it's kind of like you ever saw the movie Say Anything where John yeah. Cusack. Is it John Cusack? Is, he in that? is John Cusack is in it? Not John yeah. Cusack. Yeah. Oh. Say Anything. And where Ione Sky, I think that's her name. She's coming in to she it's graduation day. It's the beginning of the movie. And her father gives her a key, gives her keys to a car. And she literally points to her car. She's like, oh, my God, I got keys. And she's in her cap and gown. And and John Cusack has such he has such a crush on her and he wants to get a picture with her. And so he jumps into the picture as she's pointing to her car. So uh-huh. that's I literally am pointing at Bill Clinton as he, skinny Bill Clinton is getting his tray of okra. And this is like right before, as you see, the guy that's coming up behind me yeah. is the secret service that cock blocked me completely. Wow. There's mm-hmm. a story in that photograph that's just precious. I adore it. So mm-hmm. I think you're you're doing really well with the with what do you what do you have in mind for is it going to be a Zoom call this year your your Christmas card? This year is an interesting year because okay. you know last year I I had a picture with Gary Busey which was just classic and then I had to now I have a husband so it can't be just me and somebody I've got to include him right. so last year we uh we superimposed. We superimposed my husband's face <laughs> with with Gary Busey. So it's nice. Gary Busey and I smiling, and then my husband's uh, face superimposed, lurking in the background. So this year, uh, my husband and I, we we figured it out. Um, I had to really rack my brain. Do I have anybody B-list this year? No, I don't. But this year, we just took it the other day because I was like, listen, people people are expecting something. So uh, I took it to a level where I'm like, well, what says this year? So my husband and I, I don't know if anybody can see because of the light, <laughs> but we, we posed and we're both in robes and he's holding toilet paper and I'm holding Lysol and my hair looks crazy and it says good riddance 2020. Oh, so perfect. That was the best we could do, kind of being on lockdown. I don't think any B celebrity wants to meet I, anybody right now. I think the toilet paper is an A list celebrity this season. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, Lysol so, by Gary Busey. <laughs> can't believe you got a shot with toilet paper. Yeah. It's. It's extremely difficult to find this year. Um, Sean, you have been an absolute delight. Please tell people where they can find you online and follow and friend you. Oh, well, I think I thank you guys. Fritz, it's an honor and Wheezy just to be seeing you and, and being on this. And I thank you guys for having me. You both are just comedic greats and I appreciate it. And if you guys want to find me, you can always go to my website, hahachick, H-A-H-A-C-H-I-C-K.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Sean Polofsky, which is a mouthful, but it's there. And social media meltdowns has its own YouTube 
It does. At Social Media Meltdowns, you can find on Instagram where you can just watch individual clips of all the comedians and the performers. I would love to have both of you. I would love to feature both of you on this show. Every clip's about two and a half, three minutes. Um, some's from our live shows that we previously did, and some are just from the online shows. Or you can watch all the online versions um, on our YouTube channel, Social Media Meltdowns. We could reenact the chat that was going on between Fritz and I last week when he his cable or his internet was down and we're texting back and forth. It's two minutes before showtime and we're texting back and forth. And I'm saying, I'm saying, well, maybe you could just come on with your phone. And he's and Fritz is very mission oriented. So he's like, I'm going down to Spectrum. Like, I gave him like little (laughs) openings to where he could be in the show. And he just stayed on point. Like, I'm solving this problem like a man. So, yeah, we would love to read something for you. I It would be an honor to have you guys because it's so fun. I mean, like I said, so much. So doesn't matter what you turn to TripAdvisor, Airbnb, next door is the gift that keeps on giving. Next door is some crazy ass shit. I'm sure. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to see anything you guys have you want to send to me. I would love to feature you guys on the IG because it's. It's it's so fun to see what people come up with. Okay, we'll cook something up for you. We'll have a great holiday. You. Burn a candle. You too. Okay, I'm going to read the closing credits. Please enjoy them. I wrote them myself. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. And I want to thank Sean Pulaski Oliveira. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Alex Gilroy, and you. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.